Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, Wednesday last, 24th of May, is the precise centenary anniversary of the official ending of the Civil War. As regular listeners to this podcast will be aware, we've covered the conflict here and I've presented a separate series of podcasts on the Civil War for the Irish Examiner. But we felt that this anniversary of itself is worth noting and having a bit of a chat about it. Now, the actual order for the anti-treaty forces to dump arms came from the Chief of Staff, Frank Aiken, who uh, took over that role from Liam Lynch, a man uh, of whom uh, a very major biography was recently published, uh, about a month previously when Lynch died in um, an engagement, a military engagement in the Knockmealdown Mountains. So, as I said, the order was issued on the 24th of May and it began as follows. Comrades, the arms with which we fought the enemies of our country are to be dumped. The foreign and domestic enemies of the Republic have for the moment prevailed, but our enemies have not won. Neither tortures, nor firing squads, nor a slavish press can crush the desire for independence out of our hearts of those who fought for the Republic or out of the hearts of our people. And on it went in that vein. So to throw a little historical light on it and to mark the occasion, our guest this week is historian John Darney, who's the chief editor of the Irish Story website and is currently engaged in a project in UCC to count the casualties of the Civil War. John, you're very welcome. Thank you. John, I suppose to begin at the end, um, was this inevitable at the time coming from um, Frank Aiken in terms of where the conflict was at that time? Certainly, I would say it was the only logical choice given where the anti-treatyites found themselves in the late spring of 1923. Their military effort had failed, manifestly failed, in the sense that they were no longer able to wield large columns in anywhere except possibly the south and west of County Kerry and one or two other places. They held no territory. But more importantly, I suppose, the great bulk of them were in jail. There was about 12,000 in jail, not all of whom were IRA members or come-in-demand members and so on, because people could be interned just on suspicion and a great many uninvolved people were actually scooped up, but a great number, 12,000 in prison. And Liam Lynch's strategy, which was to drag out the guerrilla war, to attempt to bankrupt the free state, to block it from doing things like collecting taxes and rolling out the new police force, the Civic Guard, as it was known then, these were failing. So there's a, a very telling exchange just before Liam Lynch's death between him and his director of intelligence, a man called Michael Carlin. And Lynch says, all we need to do is hold out. We need to have faith and will and we hold out long enough and the free state will go bankrupt. And at that point, we and the free state will go to the British to renegotiate the treaty. That was the strategy. And Carlin writes back to him, apart from the what we could probably regard as the unreality of the situation, that 
as long as people are willing to lend the free state money, it won't go bankrupt. It doesn't matter how much deficit they run up, which is the crux of the issue, I think, as far as I'm concerned. So the military attempt to overthrow the free state had failed. Lynch himself was killed. Um, the political head of the anti-treaty side, Eamon de Valera, had long wanted an end to the armed campaign and peace talks. And Aiken is much closer to his thinking and much more under his influence than Lynch was before. So Lynch had... I wouldn't say a dismissive attitude towards de Valera, but certainly an attitude that he was the superior as the, the head of the military side of the movement. So the dump arms order was really just a recognition of reality in many ways. Yeah, and I suppose it follows from what you're saying that perhaps the state of conflict, whatever about the reality of it, might have persisted longer had Lynch lived, had he not died uh, in, in that uh, engagement. I think it was in the Knockmill Down Mountains. In the Knockmill Down Mountains, yeah. He shot as he was running away, basically. Um, in kind of tragic circumstances, you know, he's shot by uh, a patrol led by a former IRA man. And in the end, Lynch ends up shaking hands with him and crying and saying it was all a shame, which kind of sums up, I suppose, the civil war in many ways. Mm. Kind of. But yeah, Lynch, it seems, was wanted to persist longer. And, you know, he was insistent to the end that it could be turned around and, you know, fortunes might ebb and flow. But eventually, if they kept on long enough, they'd win, which seems at this remove and seemed to many people at the time to be a very self-defeating strategy. One of the surprising things, though, is, you know, when the Dump Arms Order is issued, like my book about the Civil War was about Dublin. And so I have the replies of the Dublin brigades at the time. There was two Dublin brigades of the IRA. And they said, we're very disappointed with this order. You know, they said, we want to carry on the fight, which is really surprising considering the state that they were in. Like they're one of the, you know, they're in a very weak state. There's very few of them. They're on the run. They're liable to be killed if they're found. Um, And yet what they say is, you know, we should carry on the fight. And people like Mary McSweeney, who was, one of the more senior political figures at the time is saying the same thing, that this is terrible. And uh, George Plunkett and so on, there's UCD Archives recently publicised a letter from him to Aiken saying the Dump Arms Order is a big mistake. So there was a constituency within the anti-treaty Republican movement saying that this was a mistake, but certainly to our eyes, it seems like the only logical step. And this is something that actually... um Theo Dorgan, who had done the podcast, and Theo did did a, a major project there, reenactment of the treaty debates that preceded the Civil War. And he made a point, certainly in those debates, that those who were opposed to the treaty, beyond continuing to fight, so to speak, they had no strategy as such. And that seems to have still been the case we're now talking about uh, May, well, 16 months later, whenever, May 23. Like, as you said, Lynch's strategy seems, not to put too fine a point in the crazy, it doesn't seem to have any logic. Was there any strategy, even in terms of the political leadership of the anti-treatyites at that stage? There was, in the sense, like, Lynch's strategy, I'd say, is, is futile, but it was a strategy. You know, that's the one thing I would say in his defence. You know, Lynch thought he could win this guerrilla war by bankrupting the free state. And they sort of were, you know, bankrupting the free state, except that, as Mr. Carolan, who I pointed out earlier, said, it wouldn't have made any difference because you can just run up a big deficit and you can deal with it later. That's what states can do. And as regards political strategy, what Lynch thought was, um, first of all, Lynch had this idea that they were the defensive side, that they were attacked without warning back in July 1922 or June, late June 1922. And so they were simply defending the Republic from this junta that was appointed by the British. And the strategy was that, once this had been exposed and once the free state had been, you know, stripped of these British support, that 
they would go back to the British and they would say, we, you know, the treaty negotiation, the treaty settlement is not acceptable and we have to revise certain parts of it. And he's thinking, of course, of the Oath of Allegiance and um, the treaty ports and stuff like this. And presumably the North, although that didn't feature very prominently in anti-treaty rhetoric at the time. Like it became prominent quite soon after the Civil War when it became clear that partition was going to be permanent. But people didn't seem to think that at the time. I mean, even the anti-treaty, I'd seem to have believed that the provisions in the treaty for boundary commission and things like that would ultimately undermine Northern Ireland. So One element to that, John, if I just interrupt you. I'm just curious about that. And, and there keeps being this reference to the Republic and you can, go, you can go into a lot about what the phrase Republican means in this country a hundred years ago and what it means today. That's neither here nor there. But this Republic that Aiken referenced there and the one they said they were fighting for, like, was that effectively a 26, possibly 27, possibly 28 county Republic? Or were they adamant that this was the so-called republic that would be uh, an all-Ireland republic. Oh, no. I mean, they would have believed absolutely it was an all-Ireland republic. And there's no question they would have, you know, but that rhetorically feature, anyway, accepted that did, partition. That element of it about the northeastern counties did not feature in the run-up to the conflict. Well, you see, this is, it did. It did, but just not in a very straightforward way. Like this, there's a lot of confusion about this, and understandably right. so, because it's very, it's very complicated and very convoluted. But basically, the short version is this, I'd say, both the pro and anti-treaty wings of the Sinn Féin movement, and that's what we're talking about here, mm. because there's other tendencies in Ireland, of course, but they're not represented in the second doll, mm. believed absolutely in a 32-county Irish state. The thing is, though, the pro-treatyites and the anti-treatyites both thought that the treaty would end partition. Now, that seems odd in retrospect, and especially now the treaty is associated with partition. But Michael Collins says, you know, the tre- Ulster will come in under the treaty. So remember, North- they thought Northern Ireland might even come in in December 1922 when it had the right to opt in or out of the free state. And certainly they thought that the Boundary Commission would take away, they thought, all the nationalist populated areas of Northern Ireland, which is counties Fermanagh and Tyrone, Derry City, Newry, South Down, South Armagh. And they thought this would have left Northern Ireland unviable. And this is the consensus position. So both sides believe this. Um, so the fact that North, the treaty split isn't about Northern Ireland is not because they didn't care about partition. It's more because... Both sides thought the treaty would take care of it. Now, that seems odd to us because we know in hindsight that's the opposite of what happened. But that's what both sides thought. Now, the other thing is, before the Civil War, Michael Collins and Liam Lynch cooperated in a military sense on the North. Um, Collins basically supplied Lynch with weapons that he got from the British. The anti-treaty weapons were then sent to the North because they were deniable, but the anti-treatyites were armed with British weapons. There's all sorts of odd things going on. The press like the Irish Independent, the Freeman's Journal. I'm not sure the examiner's position, to be honest, at the time, but was adamantly anti-partition. You know, this is really the consensus view in the, in the south of Ireland. You know, even, even Redmondites and so on are really anti-partition. So later on, I mean, partitionism certainly, you know, partitionist attitudes, as we say in history and so on, really crept in later in the 20th century in the sense that many people in the south wanted to disengage from Northern Ireland, especially during the, the Troubles. That's not really the position at the time. I think people are reading it backwards. So at the time, basically people thought, Partition is irrelevant because the, the the issue at hand is whether Ireland will be out of the British Empire or not, whether it'll be completely independent. And they said the partition thing is secondary because it's going to come in anyway, is what they believed. Well, yeah, very understandable. But one thing that strikes me about that is that's despite the fact that the, the whole uh, business of militarisation on the island began effectively some seven years earlier with the Ulster Volunteer Force. Such was their... A position that under no circumstances were they going to be part of, of, of a scenario breaking away from the crown and 
as you say, at the same time, and I, I see what you're saying at the same time, I just wonder, what, 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 was there an awful lot of wishful thinking going on there among various elements within the, uh, uh, the Sinn Féin movement, both pro and anti-treaty in the South, in terms of North. And I also wonder if they'd been given the 26-27 county republic with no oath of allegiance, would you have had much of a civil war then? You wouldn't have had a civil war in the South, no, but you would have had a war between North and South, is what I think. I mean, and one of the ironies of this, looking back, is that Michael Collins was one of the hardest on this. So, you know, I've looked at Collins' memos to the Cabinet um, just after the Civil War broke out, so which is in July 1922. So we only had a month to live, as we know, but he didn't know that. And Collins is saying, now with the National Army, the Free State Army expanded, and it's been massively expanded. It's actually a breach of the treaty. So the terms of the treaty says that the army can't exceed X percentage of the population, and the National Army massively exceeds it, as it turns out, and it's been armed by the British. But Colin says, now we have an army that means something with relation to the North, and we'll show Churchill that bully that you can't just push our people around. He's referring at that point to the shooting of two young women in South Armagh by um, a British army checkpoint. Mm. So, you know, things might have worked out in all kinds of strange ways that we couldn't anticipate, you know. Very true. Now, as things did work out, how was de Valera's political stock at the time of the ending of, of, of the Civil War? I mean, I would say that Eamon de Valera looked back at this as the worst time of his political life. So de Valera managed to get himself in a position where he's anathema to the pro-treatyites. They blame him for the Civil War, actually, you know, for his speeches, especially leading up to the Civil War, but wading through blood and so on. On the other hand, he's not listened to by his own side either. He's not listened to really by Liam Lynch. So he sets up an underground government on Lynch's insistence, really, like as a kind of um, a fig leaf, I suppose you know, that the Republic still exists. On the other hand, the IRA executive is superior to this Republican government and they consult with them, they talk to them, but they're not allowed to vote on any matters of war and peace, the strategy. So when the IRA executive meets in March 1923, de Valera is allowed to listen and he's not allowed to vote. So, and de Valera by this time is kind of pleading with Lynch to call off the civil war. Now, de Valera's position is still basically advocating for a thing called document number two, which is what he proposed at the time of the treaty debates where there's a revision of the treaty where Ireland would be associated with the British Empire, but not part of it. You know, it's it's a little convoluted, but de Valera's thing in one way is understandable at the time with the treaty split in the sense that he wants to keep the movement together and he needs some formula, he thinks, to keep the militant Republicans on board. But he never says to them at any point, and this would be my criticism of him, that you've gone too far, you know, by occupying the forecourts, for example, by, you know, by disavowing the doll in the um, IRA convention of March 1922, that you've gone too far and you're threatening civil war. And although de Valera is writing to Richard Mulcahy at this time saying we must at all points, at all costs, rather, prevent civil war, you know, his actions lead him in another direction. So he ends up by the spring of 1923 in this situation where he really wants a, a, a political way forward. He just sees no future, correctly, I suppose, for the armed struggle, for the continuation of, of war. But until Liam Lynch is gone, really no one listens to him, you know. And it's only when Aiken comes, becomes the chief of staff of the IRA that Aiken, or sorry, that de Valera really finds a friendly voice at the head of the IRA. Now, de Valera's position is you need to find a constitutional way forward that the only solution from a Republican point of view is getting the people back on our side because he recognises the majority of people are not on their side in the Civil War. And at the same time, though, I mean, he's still doing a little bit of double talk in the sense that the pro-treaty government says, well, there can only be talks once the arms are handed in. And of course, this had a replay much more recent times in Irish history. But And de Valera refutes that. He says, 
that would be submission pure and simple. So we can't have that. And this is why him and Aiken come up with the formula of the dump arms order. So first of all, the ceasefire, which is uh, in April. And then roughly a month later, the dump arms order, which is not surrender, but it's a clear, it's a clear sign that the war is over. He was a he was he was a great man for that kind of thing. I hadn't thought that to be honest. Obviously, know her near as well as yourself, but that was one of Dev's. Uh, the document number two, of course, was a, another one. And then you move it on when he when he did become Taoiseach and uh, the emergency during Second World War. Of course, was a brilliant. Um, uh, <laughs> just an understatement but he was a great man for coming up with formulae and, and, and that kind of thing in order to get around a, a political uh, impasse or whatever in your opinion John there is a school of thought and I think it prevails to a certain extent that more than anybody Dev was responsible for the civil war and now, obviously, it was completely went out of his control how it developed. It developed shockingly on both sides, it has to be said, including the executions, but also what, what some of the anti-treaty has said. But in your opinion, that idea that he bears huge responsibility for it, um, what do you think of that? You know, it's impossible to disentangle this from the partisan debates even today. You know, So the pro-treaty line at the time is very much that it's for de Valera's fault, you know, that these, yes, there was hotheads, you know, in the IRA, these young men, but they never would have had any traction if it wasn't for the legitimacy given them by the president of the Republic, you know, as he had been, Eamon de Valera. And so the pro-treaty line is very much as de Valera's fault. The whole thing was de Valera's fault. And it was all about his egotism and his desire for power and so on. And like the early pro-treaty histories of the period, like PSO Hegarty's The Victory of Sinn Féin, are very much de Valera's terrorist army. That's what caused this, you know, and his you know, ego, basically. And Richard Mulcahy's papers are full of this as well. And Mulcahy, you know, you can trace him when you're reading his documents that uh, he tries to blame de Valera for the assassination of Sean Hales, TD from Cork, who's killed in, in Dublin in December 1922, and so on. Now, the anti-treaty version and de Valera's version is, no, that's just completely, it's the opposite. So I was attempting to, um, to broker peace and compromise when suddenly the soldiers of the Republic were attacked without warning on the orders of the British now, all I'll say is that both of those things are kind of true, you know, so certainly de Valera never said clearly to the IRA, yes, you have to obey the civilian authority. You have, you can't just disavow the authority of the doll. That is absolutely true. Um, on the other hand, it is also true that de Valera wanted a compromise. So de Valera's anti-treaty party received less votes in the election of June 1922. And, you know, perception is that de Valera, you know, disavowed this result. But that's not actually the case. So de Valera's writing in the week between the election and the start of the civil war, two weeks, we're going to go into the Dáil, but not take the oath because he didn't have to take the oath yet until the Free State formally came in. You know. We're going to go in and we're going to persuade the pro-treaty TDs that they can't vote for a constitution, approve a constitution that includes the oath to the British monarch and so on. So de Valera is still trying to, he's still trying to do his, what can we say, his political wiles you know, to try to find a compromise. On the other hand, it is absolutely true that he never formed a red line for the IRA saying you can't do this, you know, you've, you've overstepped the line here. So, you know, I'm, I'm not willing to say either one of those things is true because they're too mm. they're too bound up with the partisan debates before and since. They are. No, having said that, that June 22 election, I think it's about 78% of the electorate voted for parties or individuals who were pro-treaty. So Dev's idea of going in there and convincing 
correspondingly number of TDs that they need to uh, cop on to themselves. You'd have to wonder about, is, he must feel great self-confidence if he really believed that himself. The other thing about him is people have suggested that much later in his career, when historians or, or journalists or whomever spoke to him, and they wanted to talk about his, his, his political career as Taoiseach, that he himself kept going back to this period it was nearly as if in his mm. own mind there was something he wished he had done differently but maybe that's, a, maybe that's a bit of speculation but he certainly I suppose what you can say is his, his political comeback thereafter was quite extraordinary altogether. Spectacular yeah and I mean people tend to underestimate De Valera today and they associate him with you know De Valera's Ireland conjures up an image of you know Catholic mm. Ireland and things people possibly want to leave behind today and they underestimate De Valera you know as the man who made the speech of you know comely maidens at the crossroads but if you read De Valera's papers and if you read the biographies written by David McCullough recently as well you know you'll see a very intelligent political operator and that was De Valera's great talent you know he so in the aftermath of the civil war he is first of all faced with kind of weaning anti-treaty side away from return to military methods so Aiken for example is writing in IRA correspondence afterwards we lost the war but we'll win the next one you know and he says, the next one won't be at all like the last one. We'll have well-trained units with um, light artillery and mortars and gas. And, you know, we'll be able to overwhelm the free staters in a short time. You know, Aiken is thinking in those terms. Aiken, who later goes on to be a Fianna Fáil minister, of course, for many years. And de Valera weans them away from that. And he has a great debate with Mary McSweeney, who was the very the purest on the idea that... The That's second, Terence McSweeney's sister for people. Terence McSweeney's sister, yeah. Who was really hardcore, hardline Republican, who holds very fast the idea that you can never recognise the free state. And de Valera's position is, no, you have to enter the institutions of the free state to carry out our objectives, to reform the treaty in the way that we want. And de Valera spits off, he forms Fianna Fáil, but he takes most of his support with him. He, he does what he failed to do in 1922. And he leads them gradually down the road to constitutional politics. Now, not, not all of the IRA, of course, because the IRA continues to exist. And de Valera himself ends up legalising first in 32 and then banning the IRA in 34. So he goes on his own journey. But the point, the other point I'd make about de Valera, though, and partially in his defence, is at the time of the treaty, you know, the likes of Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy would say things like Collins famously said, it's a stepping stone to ultimate freedom. Richard Mulcahy says, I don't like a single article of the treaty. So a lot of people thought that the treaty was just good enough for now. And it's under de Valera's government in the 30s that a lot of the things, the blockages, I suppose, on Irish independence actually get removed. So the oath is the big symbolic one, but there's much more important material ones, including the land annuities, which is a big debt it's owed to pay back the land, the payments for the land acts. The treaty ports get given back and also the clause of... Just very before World War II, the treaty ports fortuitously. In 1938, exactly. And the other thing is that the treaty has a clause that says in time of war the Irish Free State must give all of its ports and all of its airfields to the British Armed Forces for their use. And that's removed, just as you said, just before World War II. Now, whatever you think of our policy of neutrality in World War II, it was only our decision to make because these things were rescinded. So mm. in fairness to de Valera, many people did have problems with the treaty and many aspects of it. And it was de Valera's governments in the 30s that did remove some of these aspects. Oh, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And the, the, un, the huge tragedy was that he didn't try and go in there immediately and, and set about going that without there be, being a war. But as you said, it, it's far more complicated than that. He doesn't bear major... He, he bears some responsibility. And it'll, it'll always be contested how much responsibility he bears this was. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The other thing, John, so we're at a point, and, and there is afters in terms of violence. There's sporadic things, including... The, the brutal murder of um, Noel Lemass in the Dublin Mountains, brother of Sean Lemass, f- for future Taoiseach and what have you. And then, well, Kevin O'Higgins, of course, in 1927, but it was still afterwards, whatever you want to call it. But in terms of the new state getting off the ground, h- how much was it set back as a result of that 10-month conflict? Yeah, it was set back enormously. So in the short term, just the financial thing uh, was very daunting. So I mentioned like Liam Lynch's plan was to bankrupt the free state and he didn't manage that, but he came close. And so they have this huge deficit running into 1923-24. So one thing they have to do is, is slash the army, which possibly not a bad thing. I mean, one of the differences between the Irish free state and a lot of newly independent states is the army had almost no role in politics afterwards because it was reduced to a very small size. Now, not, not without problems, there's an attempted mutiny in the army. But it also means there's no money for social services, really. Um, they famously had to cut the, you know, the pension and so on. Mm. After the free state, you know, Ernest Blythe famously, you know, took the shilling or whatever it was off the, the pension. Um, they did do a new land act. This isn't talked about enough, I feel. But they completed the process of the land acts by compulsorily purchasing all the remaining landlords, which of whom there's quite a lot, you know. Um, and they had to get a huge loan from the British government to do that, actually. But in terms of, you know, the idea that a new Irish state would be able to embark on a whole new spending program, that's not a runner after the Civil War. You just don't have the money. In fact, you have a decade of what we'd refer to as, you know, cutbacks. Um, you also have a very paranoid state after the Civil War. So there is, after this, after the Dump Arms Order, there's a renewed legislation. The Public Safety Act is renewed in the summer of 1923, which, you know, allows for internment without trial, allows for execution if necessary. It also allows for flogging and so on. And that continues into the following year. But to this day, I mean, we have very... Sorry, flogging, John? Flogging, yeah. And some people... Yeah, flogging was more widely practiced in Northern Ireland, actually, under the Special Powers Act, but it it was on the books in the Free State as well. And, you know, we still to this day have very, you know, severe anti-terrorist or security legislation in the form of now the Offences Against the State Act. But, you know, that is, I would say without question, a product of the Civil War. And one other thing which I like to highlight is in the days of British rule in Ireland, the last decades of British rule, one of the things that Conservative governments tried to do was to expand local government and local democracy um, in order to assuage demands for self-government. Now, as we know, that didn't quite work out. But in 1920, one of the things that Sinn Féin was able to do the United Sinn Féin, of course, pre-split, was to take over local government and they would declare their allegiance to the Dáil and they would set up Dáil courts and so on. Now, post-Civil War, the people, many of them who had been involved in that, like W.T. Cosgrave, who had been the Minister for Local Government under the first Dáil, basically abolished most of the powers of local government. So they abolished altogether the corporations of Dublin and Cork cities for a period of years. And then when they reinstituted them, they had much less powers, you know, because 
the idea is the central government can't be challenged. You know, you, you must shore up the security of the state. And there's all kinds of things, you know, that date back to the Civil War. So, I mean, we've less local democracy even today in terms of the power of elected representatives than we had prior to the revolutionary period. Absolutely. I was going to ask you about that, actually. And you're spot on. I mean, you know, it has always been a complaint. And I think I think it's fair to say that only really comes forward to a certain extent in the last 20 or 30 years in particular because of various elements of governance. But this notion that local government, uh, that there is so much centralised control of government at the expense of local government. And it's always been interestingly enough as well. It's nearly like you were saying at the time, it's nearly like they wouldn't trust those in local government to, to, to conduct themselves properly. In some ways, that has persisted to a point. You look at things even like planning and even like uh, waste disposal and thing. That thing has persisted right through the century, that idea of uh, centralised governance at the expense of proper local democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some of that, I would say that really does date back to the Civil War and to the uh, early Free State some of it, though, dates back to this idea of the Sinn Féin party that under the local government system instituted by the British, you know, there was an awful lot of corruption and their predecessors, the Rebendites, you know, were just, you know, masters of graft and so on. And that, you know, in independent Ireland, there would be clean government and so on. Some of it is that. And that's why it's shared by Fianna Fáil as well as Fianna Gael in later years. But some of it, I mean, the original reason why both Cork and Dublin corporations were abolished was because of their, in Cork, it's, um, I think they wanted the female prisoners released. They passed a motion for that. In Dublin, they wanted, they conducted their own independent inquiry into the treatment of prisoners in the civil war. And, and that's the reason that they were abolished in 1923. And, and they're, you know, as I said, they're reinstated later in the twenties, but with much less powers. And, uh, you know, in, in Dublin, the city is still run by what's now called the chief executive officer. It used to be the city manager and I assume the same is true in Cork City as well yeah yeah so that's you know you can date back that back and there's all kinds of like Tom Garvin the political scientist used to say that Irish democracy was tinged with authoritarianism uh, as a result of its origins I think that's true yeah and those who were there I presume would would argue that they had to be authoritarian under the circumstances of, of, of what had proceeded but as you say it certainly left a mark in that respect Another element that strikes me too in terms of fallout after Civil War, John, you know, Civil Wars, to some extent, well, sorry, a lot of them would tend to be based on religion, geography, tribal identity, that kind of thing. Here, we're talking about those who were prepared to compromise on a vision that was first articulated in 1916 and those who weren't. So there's very different... um, Fallout in that respect, it didn't go along tribal, geographic, or, or or religious lines as such. I suppose, come to think of it, you could you could posit that the Spanish Civil War between fascists and and um, left wing communists to some extent was the same. But the fallout as a result is um, it's different. In some ways, it's more ingrained because the man down the street or the woman down the street was on the other side, as and and to every other extent. They could be exactly the same as, as yourself, culturally, same religion, what have you. Yeah, it's an unusual one. I mean, again, it's not really like Spain either, because, you know, there's a very deep ideological divide. Yeah, there. that's and true. Some, yeah. And also in Spain, you know, you've got also regional nationalists, which is part of yes, it too. Yes, yes. You know, so, but having said that, though, I mean, I've been, I've thought about this, because it, it is an unusual thing, you know, the Irish Civil War in lots of ways. But there are parallels, though, in the, if you look at the aftermath of, or um, when compromises are imposed on national liberation movements, 
or movements for independence. And two parallel cases are both found, I think, in, in Israel and Palestine, for example. At the time of the British Mandate of Palestine, so at the time you had the Zionist movement, which wanted to create Israel, which now exists. And, you know, there's one faction, the Haganah, which um, the Labour Zionists, which wanted to work with the British. Certainly they recognised during the Second World War that, you know, they're the lesser of two evils. And you have the Irgun, which is called the right wing of the revisionist faction of Zionists. And their thing is, no, we must fight the British. And those two sides came to blows in the 1940s. So the Haganah ended up rounding up to a large extent, the other side. Now, the thing about that is, just like Ireland, for a long time, you know, that was the divide in, in Israeli politics. So, you know, the Labour Zionists were mm. for a long time in power. But later on in the 80s, you know, the other side came to power in the form of their party, which Benjamin Netanyahu is, is still, you know, the leader of today. So there, there's some parallels there. And similarly, on the other side, in much more recent times of that conflict, um, the Palestinians, you know, you have a clear divide has opened up between yes. the people who favour compromise with Israel, which is, you know, primarily Fatah, the PLO, and Hamas, who say, you know, no surrender, to, to borrow a phrase. So it's not entirely unique, you know, and if you look at when similar circumstances are imposed on people, when they must choose a compromise or not, possibly these things will happen, you know. Yeah, very true. And one other element to it, John, um, it was, as we know, brutal. Uh, the executions in particular, the summary executions. My own granduncle was summarily executed effectively after an engagement in, in South Kerry and particularly got nasty in Kerry, as we know. Um, and, and, you know, it was, it was brutal on the other side too, some, some of the, the stuff that was carried on by the, by the anti-treaty side. However, we're all very aware of that, but I think it's also the case that there is records in plenty of other countries where things were more prolonged and got mm. just as vicious, if not a lot more vicious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the whole Irish revolutionary period, you know, was bloody enough. So we probably, from 1916 to 23, you probably have about four or 5,000 deaths across the whole of Ireland, the whole 32 counties. And in the Civil War, you know, as you mentioned, I'm engaged in a project with UCC now to count the casualties. Um, and we have a, a total for the official Civil War, which is, you know, from the bombardment of the Four Courts to the Dump Arms mm. Order. And we have about 1,400 deaths. Now, as you said, it didn't. It wasn't like a football match. It didn't start and end with the whistle. So actually, the true total is, is higher than that. But in term, in world historical terms, in terms of the, those particular times post World War One, those are small numbers. You know, like people always cite Finland, where twenty thousand were killed in the Civil War, which is just you know six months, I think, in nineteen eighteen. The Spanish Civil War you mentioned has hundreds of thousands of deaths. The Russian Civil War they go into the millions, and so on. Um, and even smaller countries like Latvia and Lithuania are in much more vulnerable parts of Europe. So one of the advantages, I think, maybe, is that Ireland is an island. And one of the things that really escalates all these other civil wars that you, we talked about is outside intervention. So, you know, whether it be German and Italian in the Spanish Civil War, whether it be um, German and Russian in the, in the Finnish Civil War, etc. And you don't have that in Ireland, not by 1922 anyway. Like, so the Germans tried to intervene in the, during the First World War and they aided the Easter Rising and so on. That doesn't happen. Um, the British, of course, intervene, but they're the only ones. So that gives one side like a, a big material advantage. But also, like, the Irish Civil War has some really horrible acts in it, as you mentioned, particularly in Kerry, where, you know, there's a series of massacres of anti-treaty prisoners in March 1923, which I think uh, anyone would find impossible to defend today. And you have uh, 81 you know, official executions, which is a high number, actually, even by standards of other civil wars. But there is also, I mean, a lot of the country 
there is it isn't very bloody. You know, you have lots of counties where the the death of death of the civil civil war in single figures. Um, you know, like uh, Wicklow has, I think, six. You know, within the official dates of the civil war, and you don't for all the horror of things like the Ballycidi atrocities in Kerry and so on. They're not that widespread. You know, there's, yes, there's extrajudicial killings elsewhere. Like there's quite a few in Dublin. People are taken out and shot. There's people, famously six anti-treaty guys killed up in Ben Bulban and Sligo, etc. You don't see widespread massacres of civilians all over the place, or of prisoners all over the place. And you don't see widespread killing of civilians. In fact, you see less killing of civilians, a lot less killing of civilians than you did in the War of Independence. So like in the War of Independence, the IRA shot about 200 civilians as alleged informers, and most of them were in six months, really, in the in 1921. In the Civil War, Liam Lynch actually banned, you know, his fighters, his units, from killing civilians up until the very end. You know, Lynch gets very bitter as it goes on, and he finally lifts this ban. But Padraig O'Rourke, the historian, has counted 13 civilians killed as informers by the IRA in the Civil War, you know, compared to 200. So in that sense, it's a lot, a lot less bad than even before the truce. Finally, John, it has been described I think accurately or otherwise it's something along the lines of the most conservative revolution ever. I don't know. <laughs> that's that's fairly global. But, you know, along those lines, and as you pointed out, the, the first executive, they were authoritarian. Um, that conservatism, that authoritarianism, could we speculate that it may not have been anything like that had some compromise been reached and there was... No civil war. I mean, was that a direct product of that? Or or because of the nature of the country, because particularly of the position of the church and and, and, uh, the nature of society here, you know, would we pretty much have ended up that way anyway? Yeah, I mean, speculation is never healthy, you know, but in the sense, it's never healthy for a story anyway, you know, (laughs) you know, but uh, like, Let's. I, I. I'll do the typical historian thing and talk out of both sides of my mouth, though, if I may. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, on the one hand, you've got kind of structural issues, right? So the Irish Free State has a, a relatively small tax base. It doesn't get all the industrial areas of the north, which it thought it was going to get. So, in terms of a big program of public spending in the twenties, that's going to be difficult. You also, you have like the Irish farmers did very well during the First World War years, and that's gone now because the markets have all reopened. Um. So they're good. There may have had to be some sort of austerity anyway in, in terms of the social and economic, but certainly the, on the authoritarian question, um, and this talking here about the political side now rather than the religious side, I'll get to that, mm. it definitely makes it a lot worse. 100% it does. I mean, you know, it's not, you know, in 1923 there's an election, yes, which is very good because most civil wars wouldn't have had such a thing, you know, where they were losing, losing side participates just after the civil war. On the other hand, I mean, you have most of the candidates imprisoned on the anti-treaty side. You have rallies shot at, you know, you have press censored, you know, it's so, it's unthinkable that that would have happened had there not been a treaty split in the Civil War, you know, so that's absolutely a very negative consequence. Now, the Free State's political culture does eventually recover from that, you know, and there's, it takes quite a long time though, I mean, there is a danger in the 30s that they could do it all again in the, when the blue shirts were raised against the Fianna Fáil government. Um, whether or not there could have been a Civil War there, there was certainly a lot of violence, you know, and, and there was a crackdown on the blue shirts by the Fianna Fáil government and then the IRA as well. And it takes a long time, you know, for, for Ireland to really become what you might describe as a normal democracy with very with kind of free debate. Now, on the religious question, it's again, the civil war certainly didn't help, but you have a lot of long-term things going on there. So, for example, if we talk about 
people say that in Ireland, well, health and education was handed over to the church after independence. And that's not true. So health and education was handed over to the Catholic church and the Protestant churches by the British government yeah. in the 19th century. So those are long-term things. And the Free State could not do an awful lot about it unless it was going to retake all these schools, you know. Now, as it turned out, yes, the Civil War had its influence. And yes, the, um, you know, the, there was no money and the, the church was very much on message with the first pro-treaty government and so on. Um, anti-treaty Republicans very much resented the church for that alone, I would say, in the early years. Um, but the Catholic Church was going to be very powerful anyway. It had control over major institutions of Irish life anyway. And had there not been a civil war, I think, yes, there could have been a much stronger debate about these things. Also about the role of women, for example, mm. which is also a casualty of the civil war. I mean, the anti-treaty women are very much blamed from the civil war and pro-treaty discourse. But it's possible you might have ended up in the same place anyway. And certainly in terms of the, the power of the church, because yeah, as I said, the very strong institutional control, but also, you know, we have to put ourselves in the minds of the people back then. Most Irish Catholic people certainly saw the church as a positive thing in those days. They didn't hold the same attitudes as people, many people hold today. Oh, completely. Completely. The, the people gave the church the power effectively. Definitely. John, fascinating. It is. And, you know, it's good to mark these things. And John is chief editor of the Irish Story website and engaged in, and I have to say this, that UCC have done some huge work in relation to that whole revolutionary period, documenting it, uh, the real underground work, great stuff altogether. John is involved in one of those now in counting the casualties of the Civil War. John Darley, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Uh, always, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you folks for listening. we we'll talk to you again soon. Take it easy. Take it easy.